welcome to the ML India podcast, where we speak with people in India that are doing really cool things with data. Our guest today is Dr. Preeti Jyoti, who leads Computational Speech and Language Technologies Lab at IIT Bombay. Prior to joining IIT Bombay, she was a postdoc at Backman Institute at UIUC and is an authority on accent and speech processing systems. We had a great conversation spanning her experience at IIT Bombay and how she manages intricacies of ML research methodology. So do you want to like maybe talk a little bit about uh, at least give like a brief introduction about yourself and like how you got into speech and then what are some of the really interesting questions or problems that you're dealing with in speech today? Sure. Um, so uh, I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Computer Science at IIT Bombay. Uh, so I joined here in September 2016. So it's going to be four years. Um, before that, um, I did my PhD at uh, Ohio State, uh, and then I did a postdoc fellowship at the Beckman Institute, which is in UIUC. Um, my research interests are predominantly in speech, um, and now increasingly, I'm also working on text and uh, also a little bit of video uh, analysis. Um, so about how I got involved in speech. So I think, uh, yeah, this kind of dates back to my early undergrad days, uh, where I always found AI very fascinating, but it was mostly kind of from popular literature. I don't think I really understood what went into AI at that point. And uh, it was when I went into grad school that I really started appreciating machine learning and AI and kind of the technical depth in that field. Um, and when I went to grad school, uh, working on speech uh, was very attractive also because of my advisor, so um, Eric Fosler-Lucier. Um, I think uh, you know may, you might you might also concur that many a time when we you do a PhD, it's the advisor that one chooses right, rather than the very specific area of specialization. So yeah, in my case, you know, I ended up working on speech, and um, it turned out to be a very kind of exciting journey. So I'm very glad for that. Um, regarding problems that uh, you know I am currently interested in and I find interesting, so right from my postdoc, uh, I was focusing quite a bit on uh, speech models, so building uh, speech technologies in, for low-resource settings, meaning these are uh, scenarios where we don't have access to lots of label data for speech. And so here, uh, when I say speech, um, I'm, I'm mainly referring to speech recognition. Um, so this has been uh, this has sustained as a problem of interest, right? And I, I'm very curious. I'm very interested in um, how does one adapt these very large pre-trained models, uh, speech models, to uh, specific um, target families like uh, accented speech, uh, dialectal speech. So um, going the route of uh, you know collecting vast amounts of the target speech that you're interested in, and then fine-tuning these pre-trained models seems somewhat unsatisfying. So um, I'm very interested in kind of effective methods of transfer learning. Um, when you start from these large pre-trained models and then you want to adapt it to very specific uh, target settings. Uh, and another interest which started after I moved to India was uh, building uh, computational model for, models for code-switched speech and text. Uh, and this is really a very interesting problem. And there are lots of sources uh, um, of noise so it's not just that you are, so code switch speech and text is when, you know, you, if you're speaking in Hindi to your friends, uh, you're not speaking in Shuddh Hindi. You're going in and out of, say, Hindi and English. And there are 
any other uh, candidates like lunches which will mix and the other kiri and this is very prominent in india um, which is because the multilingual society and this uh, poses lots of interesting technical challenges for uh, computational models because it's not easy for especially in code switch speech it's not very easy for models to pick up when you have actually transitioned from one language into another um and when we look at computational models for code switch text which currently actually um is the main uh, way in which um, youngsters communicate right uh, so when you're writing um on social media when you're posting on social media you use code mixed text you're not your text is typically not monolingual so here uh, there are other interesting challenges where your text could be romanized and so that introduces another layer of ambiguity and how do you now disambiguate these uh, romanized forms of the words uh, so overall kind of building computational models is very interesting and then there is also paucity of data so this again ties into the my interests in uh, low resource settings um and another problem which i've recently started kind of thinking uh, working on more is multimodal learning so here speech is just one modality and you're kind of looking at how to learn good representations of speech in conjunction with other modalities like text and video um so this yeah more or less covers all the problems that i'm currently working on and i find interesting uh yeah and this gives us i think a really nice segue into the next question we uh, really wanted to talk about uh, the current transfer learning progress in speech and how mm. is it useful when it comes to maybe transfer learning in dialect or uh, low resource languages or even accent is it going the very nlp bird transformer way or is speech different that way yeah um so over the last couple of years there have been actually a number of different efforts uh, kind of independent efforts where they are looking into uh, building kind of very long uh, pre-trained uh, models for speech representations so very much like the uh, in, in very much in the bird style right you, you have um, kind of self supervised objectives and you have you train these speech representations on large amounts of uh, unlabeled data so this is usually all unsupervised but i think um, uh, since you mentioned bert in the sense that bert has become such a major resource for nlp applications i don't think we've seen that for speech yet but um, i think it's just a matter of time and um, with respect to that i mean there's very recent work out of uh, fair so facebook research um, so there's a system called xlsr uh, where they uh, build on their platform for speech recognition called wave to vec and uh they've trained these um, very large uh, pre-trained models using again self-supervised objectives all in an unsupervised way and uh, they are also able to train on different languages right like your multilingual bird and so on and they show very very pretty impressive cross-lingual asr numbers okay so where you start with these um, pre-trained speech representations and then maybe you have a small amount of speech in your uh, target language of interest and so you do a small amount of fine tuning and you match the performance uh, you know with fully supervised systems which use a lot more additional data in those target languages so i think um, um right uh, this is kind of just building up uh, uh, it's uh, lagging a little behind 
uh, Bert, but I, I think we are going to get there soon. Uh, but I also should like add a caveat. I, I think the limits of how well it will work uh, for speech has, hasn't been explored enough. And so this is a very interesting and exciting open area. Um, so especially for, you know, like morphologically rich languages, like many of our Indian languages, um, it's not very clear how well the transfer learning will scale um, across different dialects and across different Indian languages, which have very different characteristics. Uh, so that's, you know, something which uh, remains to be seen. I mean, how well will uh, transfer? But uh, but I think um, the upshot is that, you know, um, we are already kind of seeing systems which are coming out, which are showing very impressive numbers. And um, I'm sure we'll see more of this in the coming years. So, I mean, that's kind of interesting because um, when we look at, say, uh, low resource NLP work or like multilingual NLP work where they're doing like zero shot transfer and stuff like that, or few mm -hmm. short transfer. I mean, anecdotally, I found that it doesn't seem to work as well for Indian languages. Yeah. Um, and even in like really big benchmarks like XNLI and stuff like that, uh, Hindi yeah. Urdu benchmarks yeah. are significantly lower than like English German benchmarks or like English Spanish benchmarks. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And that's also because um, uh, like all the lang the uh, multilingual BERT is trained on lots of languages which share uh, language families and so on. Right. So. Um, even so, if you go a little further back, there are these multilingual representations uh, called Muse, and uh, which you might be familiar with. And so uh, we had found that you know these these, these were essentially multilingual embeddings, text embeddings, and they re really worked pretty well for like English Spanish, uh, English German pairs. But um, the minute you move to Hindi, uh, we immediately saw a degradation in performance. I think it was. There are word order differences in these languages, which may not be adequately captured by the multilingual embeddings. Um, and also, uh, once you move to other language, like languages in South India, like Telugu and um, Tamil and Malayalam, which are very morphologically rich, there are additional challenges. Right. Uh, so I think, yeah, there's, there are lots of interesting open questions uh, here. Um, and I'm um, with. With respect to this, we re I recently we recently uh, saw a paper where they talk about the effectiveness of uh, multilingual BERT, and it was very interesting. the uh, the observation The insight was that it's not really maybe the number of languages that's important; it's uh, your the subword, um, the effective vocabulary size using subwords that is more important, uh, which I thought was interesting. Um, yeah. Oh. Uh, I was under the impression that BERT was didn't look at subwords. Uh, multilingual BERT at least didn't look oh, at no. subwords. It, it does, it does, yeah. So it uses subword vocabularies. Yeah. Yeah. I see. Interesting. Uh, so, Professor, is there a particular paper, I guess, so we can get maybe more into technical depth or something? Uh, is there any particular paper which you would want to talk about in detail? Any paper of yours which you would like to talk about? Ah, okay. Uh, so, um, I mean, it doesn't even necessarily yeah, actually, have to be your paper, but like any paper that you might really anything that you want to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. So I actually didn't uh, think of a specific paper because there's so many papers uh, that are interesting. 
Um, so let's see. So maybe I'll uh, talk about um, this line of work which we started during my postdoc, which uh, and made it interesting, um, you know, the, the, like the genesis of the idea and how it evolved. Um, so uh, during my postdoc, um, we had this. It actually started as a just as a kind of almost a toy concept, right? So we were so we are always interested in the low resource setting. So you don't have labeled speech, right? So you don't have transcriptions for. Uh, lots of speech utterances in, in different languages. Then we had this uh, somewhat uh, unconventional, maybe even crazy idea that what if we play these uh, speech utterances okay, from, say, language X to people who don't know language X at all? Okay, so this is you set up like a crowdsourcing task. So you play these speech utterances to people and then just ask them to transcribe it using. Uh, English, I mean, English turned out it's a bad language as a language of transcription because there is no there's no systematic behavior between the spelling and the sounds, right, in English. But uh, unfortunately, uh, English is the language which most of the crowd workers are uh, familiar with. So we were, the task we had pitched was you can listen to these speech utterances and just uh, write down what you think you heard. Okay, so be try to be as faithful as possible to what you think you heard. Don't make it um, necessarily be valid English words because then you might deviate from what you think you heard. It can be nonsense syllables. So just write down what you think you heard. And so now, of course, there'll be a lot of noise. But what we were interested in seeing was if we incorporate some amount of redundancy. So, so we say you we play um, uh, check okay to like five of us who have no idea about check. And then we all do this exercise of writing down what we, so we refer to these as mismatched transcriptions. So you write down these mismatched transcriptions and then see whether there are any patterns at all that we can um, infer from these uh, collective set of mismatched transcriptions. So here we would um, use, use a small amount of label data for this, for a particular target language. So let's say it's Hindi. Um, let's say it's Bhojpuri. So it's a dialect for which we don't have a lot of labeled speech. So you take a particular dialect. We have a small amount of Bhojpuri label data. So this is true labels, right? So we know exactly what the transcriptions were. And then from those transcriptions, we can derive um, phoneme sequences. So these are sound units, phonemes. And now you will do this exercise of deriving these mismatched transcriptions. And you'll see whether there are any systematic patterns. Okay, so. Maybe um, right if you are um, um, if you are in native Indian speaker uh, native uh, speakers of Indian languages and you are listening to Czech, uh, maybe there are some systematic errors that you will make, and we are interested in those systematic errors. So that for the test data, we can recover the original phone sequence just from using the mismatched transcriptions. So this was. Uh, and almost like a um, uh, like a thought experiment at the time when we started, and then we got you know more and more interest in the problem, and actually started to see that we could uh, extract something useful from these mismatched transcriptions, right? And then uh, uh, so actually, it, it, although it started in, during my first year of my postdoc um, as a thought experiment, I ended up spending a large part of my postdoc entirely working on. This problem, and we also had a um, a, work, a, a JHU um, Fred Yelenik workshop. So, if you're familiar with, so JHU, JHU runs the speech and language workshops every year, uh, starting from 1997, which is 
this very nice uh, setup where you know every summer there'll be two or three teams who each are working on one specific problem and the team comprises of um, like one team leader and then some senior faculty and you know other researchers from industry labs and a bunch of students and the students includes uh, phd students master students and even undergrads right and then everyone sits together for one month one and a half months works on just that problem and then at the end you have a presentation and usually papers come out of these workshops and this is like it's a really fun experience for everyone involved uh, because nowadays i mean even we, we don't get the luxury of focusing entirely on one problem right so this was uh, so we actually pitched a proposal based on this mismatch transcriptions which got accepted and so we spent um, one summer in um, uh, seattle at the university of washington on this uh, particular problem right uh, so this was um, very interesting so it was not uh, a specific paper per se but i thought it will be uh, interesting to mention this experience in that you know sometimes you will start with these uh, problems or thoughts which just seem like you know they're just toy ideas but once you flesh them out there actually could be very deep uh, insights you can make uh, about that particular problem right um, so did you find i mean were the conclusions that you were able to actually piece together large uh, segments of speech maybe from these mismatch patterns or was it like yeah so some findings were one is i mean they were intuitive so um, one is uh, you know be careful about the native language background of the crowd workers when you are you know choosing whom you want to extract these mismatch scripts from so for example if your target language is say mandarin which is uh, or cantonese which is tonal right so it actually has tones then if you um, uh, play these utterances to uh, crowd workers who have no idea about tone then they're completely going to miss that signal right so then it's better to choose uh, crowd workers who also are you know familiar with tonal languages so that that was uh, kind of an intuitive observation which also panned out from the research uh, the other things were just kind of considerations when you are uh, making this task um, so one thing was, uh, yeah i think that's what you were referring to uh, karmanya so you sh present short segments because uh, otherwise longer segments is tedious because you're listening to a language which you don't know at all and so then it gets really tedious to even give these mismatch transcriptions so it was important to control for the length of the speech utterances that you are presenting to the workers uh, to get kind of uh, maximum utility out of the mismatch transcripts yeah hope hope that uh, made sense yeah i mean i find that kind of really interesting because um yeah i think that's really cool because uh, did you were you able to see like maybe correlations with say certain dialects um, so say if people are coming from like one particular region I, I don't know if that's some sort of study that you did the, where it's yeah. not just say like uh, I don't know like people would talk like the Hindi that you hear in like Haryana yeah. is slightly different from the Hindi that you hear in Punjab for example yes yes so I yeah personally I was not involved with uh, like these kinds of studies but um, they did follow up so my collaborators did follow up and uh, they did actually do some uh, some such analysis on um, dialects uh, in china and also in singapore 
so i will uh, kind of refer you to uh, mark hasagawa johnson's work and uh, nancy chen's work if you're interested in kind of follow following up more about these types of analysis that you just mentioned yeah for sure i'll probably take a look after this sure uh, yeah that's really cool um i guess so going taking a step back uh, one of the things that you mentioned is you're really interested in working in like low resource scenarios and mm -hmm. um i find that whenever i've dabbled in it a little bit i found that the challenges that you end up encountering can be very unexpected like uh, you mm -hmm. i mean everyone knows okay we don't have labor data sure but then like you'll often run out of times like okay maybe i don't have a good tokenizer you know maybe i don't have mm -hmm. like a good language model so mm -hmm. can you talk a little mm -hmm. bit about like the challenges that you face when you're working in low resource speech perhaps yeah yeah uh, yeah you're right i mean so when you're working in the low resource setting there are you know many considerations and uh, also one needs to be very careful about the conclusions that you draw right because you have small amounts of data both during training and testing so one possibility is that you know just because of your your chosen train test splits you don't find the pattern for um, and conversely right you might actually find patterns which are spurious and they are just kind of an artifact of the way that you have designed your entire experiment so it, it's uh, in the low resource setting uh, it's very uh, important to be careful and uh, one way to kind of do the Uh, ideally always you should be dealing with averaged numbers and average results where you are not just presenting a single number from a single train test split but you are presenting kind of uh, mean uh, accuracies or mean error rates in standard deviations right so you are looking at different um, experimental setups um, and another thing i one should be very careful uh, with the low resource languages and scenarios is the whole data collection angle right? data collection should be done Uh, very carefully, um, and uh, you know one should be cognizant that the data that you're collecting is actually going to be useful for the task that you're going to be uh, working with. Right. So um, there have been uh, kind of uh, I've heard anecdotes where uh, you want to kind of collect data for these low resource languages, um, and then you end up spending a lot of time, resources, uh, money. on collecting speech which is you know maybe very very uh, different from the uh, your cases so maybe you actually need speech which is more conversational in style but you end up uh, create speech which is all connected digits or you know just uh, prompts from wikipedia or something so that uh, really can change the type of data that you uh, collect and uh, it could be it may, it may not at all be useful right Uh, kind of the application that you are interested in so i think that's um, another consideration so when you're collecting data for low resource languages especially because typically it's very difficult to do this data collection for low resource languages one should spend a lot of time thinking about uh, the data collection process and then making sure that you know this is going to be useful for the use cases you have in mind Uh, so i think those are i think predominantly the two points that uh, i'd like to hit in terms of you know working with low resource uh, speech these are really useful advice and moving forward we would like to touch up on some more general career oriented questions 
So, uh, part of the reason of starting this podcast was to highlight some of the great uh, AI work which is done in India. But we also want to give out, uh, use this opportunity to take advices from people like you to how to get involved in the school research in India. And to start with those set of questions, uh, first I would like to ask you, why did you decide to come back to India after getting your PhD and postdoc? Was there any specific reason why you chose India for the further career rather than US or some other country? Yeah, so uh, yeah, coming back to India was uh, a very conscious decision and this was uh, part of the plan, uh, both for me and my husband. Uh, so I wanted to, I think, like many other researchers who've returned to India, I wanted to meaningfully contribute to the uh, research ecosystem in India. And also, I mean, given how um, ML has taken off, right, and it's so big now, there's a really big need for a lot of people uh, in the field and people who can train a generation of speech and language researchers in India. And um, why I stress on in, in India is because there are challenges which are specific to the Indian setting. So we need more people who are kind of invested in these problems. So we already touched upon you know, these things like uh, just the enormous diversity in dialects, the diversity in accents, the morphological richness in different Indian languages. These are all very important challenges to tackle for India and not necessarily a part of mainstream research, right? Uh, so um, it's, it's very, we also just you know, talked about say multilingual BERT and so on, not necessarily transferring well to Indian languages because uh, mainstream techniques needn't necessarily kind of work out of the box for uh, Indian languages or Indian uh, dialects. So um, it's, it's important and useful to have uh, invested researchers who are very keen on kind of making progress on these challenges, which are specific to the Indian setting. And that was you know, very exciting for me to think about. And another reason why I also chose academia. So then I'll have that kind of freedom to uh, choose the problems that I'd like to work on. Yeah, that's that's mainly that was a big that was mainly the decision a motivator to you know come back to India. Okay, and uh, I, I know this is slightly unplanned, but could you, uh, since you're fairly new uh, as a professor, you've been here for I think you've been a professor about four years, you mentioned, right? That's right. Yeah. So, um, could you talk a little bit about what it's like being uh, someone who's very new as or a very new professor in India? Like, what are some good yeah. things about it? What are some negatives about it? Let's sure. Yeah. Um, so it's actually it's 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 really um, nice to be um, a young person. Uh, so le let me speak from uh, you know being a faculty in IIT Bombay, and I, I'm sure it generalizes quite a bit to um, the other institutes in India as well. Um, so. Uh, at least in our department, you know, it's it's a very open environment. Um, there's a lot of um, kind of organic collaborations between faculty members, and um, I, uh, you know, coming back, I didn't really feel like there was a huge difference in the research environment. Uh, of course, there were other things like you know, I was a postdoc there, so life was certainly you know less. Um, packed and swamped with meetings and so on. Uh, so there were you know, those kinds of shifts in the one's schedule and so on. But otherwise, uh, in terms of you know, the kind of uh, interactions with colleagues, 
um, it was all, uh, there was not really a very big difference. Um, and uh, I think uh, being in, uh, so IIT Bombay, of course, there are, um, the main, I, mean, I think the, the biggest highlight of my um, uh, stint in academia so far has been the students, right? So just uh, having the opportunity to interact with students uh, who are just so enthusiastic and uh, really, really determined um, and, you know, full of questions. I mean, this is really what kind of keeps me going. Um, and it has been the most rewarding part of being a, a faculty member so far. Um, and I'm sure, you know, many young faculty members uh, across India will echo uh, this sentiment. Um, so, so far, yeah, it has been, um, it has certainly been, um, you know, very, very rewarding. Um, I think the main, uh, say, like one challenge maybe that I have been facing is mainly more kind of on the infrastructural side of things, right? So currently, um, as you know, uh, in speech and language and everything, uh, the game is rigged towards, uh, you know, groups or, you know, research labs who have a lot more compute available to them, right? And this is something which um, we don't have a whole lot of. And when I say we don't have a whole lot of, this is all relative in comparison to kind of other groups. So, uh, and but this is again something I think which we'll um, catch up. Um, and this is, and you know, there are all, already kind of lots of efforts in uh, building institute-wide clusters which the students can use and so on, which actually got uh, delayed because of the pandemic. Um, so that only from this infrastructural standpoint, I think uh, there was a difference, but otherwise, you know, it, it has really been uh, very pleasant. Right. I mean, I know what you mean when you say compute. Um, I remember when Hitkul and I were putting together the lab for uh, the, our lab at IIIT. Hmm. Um, we were very happy because we were able to get like, I think, six or seven GPUs in like yeah. one machine. Right. Yeah. And we were like ecstatic. And then I remember uh, very recently I've been talking to a few people at NYU. And I'm just like, yeah, so does the, the lack yeah. of compute, how does it work? And they're like, no, we just use like one of the university's clusters. And then you look at the university clusters, but like a hundred, yeah. hundreds, yeah. and you're like, huh, you know, like that's, it's <laughs> interesting. Yeah. Exactly, exactly, yeah. 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 So yeah, so we are, you know, we have, so I have like four, uh, you know, 1080 or 2080, uh, you know, TIs. And then <laughs> there are university clusters with uh, hundreds of P-hundreds and V-hundreds. And you're like, uh, let, I'm just wanting to give up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I guess a related yeah. question, but not very related, but um, something I'm curious about. So IIT Bombay has like this pedigree of being like a hotbed for NLP and speech research, right? Like mm -hmm. at least from India, like Pushpa Bhattacharya, really famous name. Yes. And yes. Uh, I think he influenced a lot of people to get into low resource NLP. Did you find it like intimidating Absolutely. at all to come into like IIT Bombay and like? No, not at all. And I think that I mean um, a lot of the, a lot of the credit goes to um, you know faculty members like Pushpak uh, and Sunita and uh, Soman and Ganesh. Uh, everyone was was very welcoming, right? Uh, so they never created uh, any this kind of environment of intimidation at all. So it was, you know, from the get go that you're a colleague and uh, we're having discussions and so on. So the, uh, so the, I, it, it never, um, there was no intimidation at all. Um, so, which is great. And I think that's, that's exactly how things should be. And, you know, maybe 20 years down the line, uh, I hope 
paper, right? That will be the same experience for um, young researchers coming into our department and dealing with me and others. For sure. I mean, that's awesome. Yeah. Really yeah. yeah. Extending on that. So, and this is like a two part question. So, let's say, and this more deals with people who want to work with you or maybe in IIT Bombay in general. So the first part is more specific to you, like when you are looking for students, either RAs or PhDs, what are the skill sets or I should say the pointers which you are looking for in a student to select them? And second one is maybe more general IIT Bombay that if you want to get into maybe let's say PhD in IIT Bombay, what are the way routes? So the the typical gate route is there, but uh, are there any other forms of selection in IIT Bombay? Mm -hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, so for RA ships and PhD positions, yeah. so we have, um, this is part of our admission process. So we have a written test and then we have interviews. So the interviews are kind of our first introduction to the student, right? So that's one data point uh, if you're part of the interview committee. Um, and then, um, you know, once uh, the student has been admitted into the program, uh, we always look at how they fare in courses, which uh, we are interested in. So, like, say, Foundations of ML um, and NLP course, uh, right? Uh, and uh, then, you know, there are also these seminar courses, which uh, students can take. And those are very important because there uh, we have a lot of one-on-one -on -one interactions. And so then that will you know, give me the opportunity to see how the student thinks, uh, what are the students' um, strengths, right? And uh, so that is kind of how I converge on uh, choosing a student. Uh, but mm -hmm. more broadly, I think even before you know, get gaining admission into the program, um, to be successful, I think, in applied ML, one needs to have both um, math skills and coding skills. And as I'm sure you also will agree that a lot of um, the progress you make on these applied ML problems turn out to become engineering uh, related issues, right? And yeah. so then uh, the uh, idea is one thing, I mean, coming up with an idea. Uh, and that's, I'm not, I don't want to say that's the easy part, but that's actually not a significant part of, you know, a, a project becoming success successful. Then there is the follow-up, which is to actually implement it. And now in the deep learning era, you know, there is a lot of kind of uh, engineering um, know-how to know how to make these systems work and so on, which also is mm -hmm. something which comes with time and with repeated exposure and you get better at it. But uh, it certainly helps to be uh, fairly proficient in coding. So I think for students who are, you know, keen on applied ML, I would say, um, build on your foundation. So along with courses that you are taking in your home universities, uh, augment it with, you know, online courses, which are plentiful and like really high quality online um, uh, courses are available, right, in various um, ML topics. So I would say take them so that you're building on your foundation, but at the same time also sharpen your coding skills. Um, so actually nowadays, even people who do theoretical ML have to you know, run experiments and so on. So I think coding is there's no way you can get away without doing coding. So hone your coding skills and at the same time, you know, build your foundations. 
Um, so I've seen, you know, a lot of students who take, so I, um, one of the instructors who offers a foundations of ML, the foundations of ML course uh, at IIT Bombay. So lots of students say, oh, this is just too much uh, maths, right? I mean, where am I ever going to use this? But uh, I think having that foundation helps you think uh, more in a more principled way about the problems that you are trying to solve. And even, I mean, the, the having those foundations will help you design good experiments. So the space of experiments is very, very large, right? So you can, you can just do a random walk in that space and then not be very successful at the end of it. So how to navigate that space is what the foundations help with, right? So if you have a better intuition, a mathematical intuition about the um, models that you're using for a particular problem, that will also help you design better experiments. Um, so I always kind of push students to, even though you know there might be some inertia to really understand the foundations, uh, I think it, it is very important, especially when you want to do kind of a postgraduate degree. Uh, I think there are, there are no two ways. You have to spend that amount of time to really build on your foundations. Um, so that would be kind of my yeah advice uh, for students who want to do an RA or a PhD in these fields. Um, and regarding PhD at IIT Bombay, yes, so there's the uh, gate route, which uh, you mentioned, Hitkul. The other thing is you can, um, so uh, if you, um, 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 what was I going to say? Yeah, if you um, are in, in the industry, right, uh, there are also these part-time PhD um, um, options. So they are, they're referred to as external PhD positions. So you can, you know, hold on to your job uh, and then do uh, a part-time PhD. And now we are increasingly seeing more candidates who are doing this. So, you know, for various reasons, you don't want to leave the security of your job. But if it's a research lab, um, the lab itself benefits from you doing an external PhD. And then these are typically candidates who are very interested. And so that is one uh, option to doing a PhD, which may not be like very, very apparent. Um, and the uh, one more thing I want to pitch for is a new MS by research program at IIT Bombay, which was, it, it was, it's a new program, which was actually supposed to start this autumn, but then got, everything got delayed due to COVID. Um, and MS by research is um, very much focusing on the research aspects of the MS program. Uh, so the course requirements are um, considerably smaller than the MTech program. And uh, uh, the program is uh, flexible in its duration. So anywhere from uh, less than two years up to three years. Um, and so this is one program that people can uh, look out for. And another inroad actually to doing a PhD is that if you get gain an MTech admission into IIT Bombay, then we have a provision to convert MTech students, interested MTech students into the PhD program. So there you can actually bypass uh, you know, the other uh, kind of eligibility requirements. And um, this is another way in which you can uh, enter the PhD program. Uh, makes sense. Uh, I, just to lay it out and ask a follow-up question, you mentioned performance and courses. So is it like you get selected into the IIT Bombay PhD program? And once you are in there doing your courses, then you go out and look for an uh, advisor. That's right. Uh, yeah. So when you, that's right. Absolutely. Okay. So, so there are some, yeah, there are some students who, you know, even before coming here are already in touch with, you know, potential uh, supervisors. 
and so they for them you know yeah. they're very clear that they want to work with such and such person but mostly the phd students they come here and then they look for advisors uh, because sometimes so it also happens that yeah that people don't you know stick to the area they thought they were interested in after taking courses and so on yeah uh, that also happens mm -hmm. right yeah yeah. So, uh, just to like maybe draw a parallel picture. So, I know IIIT Delhi does it and a bunch of foreign universities yeah. do it. I think IIIT Hyderabad also does it. That here you actually apply to a professor. Once you are in there and you want to change the advisor, that provision is there. But during the process, you apply to a professor. Uh, not uh, And there are institution benchmarks, but once you clear there, it's on the professor to take you or not. So, how do you think that slight different in the process? Uh, what do you think about that compared to you get into the institute and then you join? Does it affect the whole process or the appeal of it from a professor side and maybe from the student side? Yeah. 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 I think um, th this is also, I mean, this is like you said, um, in um, universities abroad, um, many universities you are committing to a um, professor, and then he or she decides, right, whether uh, based on the qualifier requirements and so on. Uh, so I think there are pros and cons to both. Um, so the pros of uh, kind of committing to a, a supervisor is that um, then there is very little ambiguity on the student side and less stress on the student side. So at least, you know, the student knows that, okay, I am kind of committed to working with this person. And then uh, they can just focus on the problem at hand, right? So that that I think is one uh, pro of uh, having a match uh, right from the start. Um, but another pro, which uh, what we do here currently at IITB, uh, this scheme, uh, um, a pro that it offers is that it gives more flexibility, uh, like I mentioned, uh, to the students. So you are not tied to a certain faculty member. Um, and even right from the beginning, you can take uh, the semester to do courses and then um, talk to different faculty, even take, take different courses under different faculty and see you know, which faculty member you um, kind of really um, feel like working with. right? Uh, because as you know, in the PhD program, it's not just uh, for the faculty to choose a student, but it's also the student choosing the faculty member because after a point, uh, you become peers, right? So it's very important that you have a good kind of working relationship. So you should also enjoy working with this person, uh, which is not just about the topic and the um, kind of expertise of the person, but it's also your the nature of your working relationship. Like, are you comfortable working with this person? Um, so I think not tying a student to a faculty gives you that flexibility. So you get a little more time to figure those things out. Um, but actually, it's not. Yeah, it's not clear in my mind. There are cons also with this current uh, scheme, where you know you'll have students who are not specifically, who are just uh, kind of trailing along, and they're not able to find faculty members who can uh, vouch for them, right? And then it becomes very stressful for the students. So that is that is certainly a con. Um, so we are you know constantly trying to refine the admission process and. Uh, yeah, so um, I don't think I have a strong preference for one over the other. Right. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. Especially the professor part, I've seen like in AAA Delhi, people get in and 
like you know going through that part of that okay this is slightly different than what i thought it would yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you want to go yeah uh yeah i just want to highlight one thing that you said um cuz yeah. so you said it's possible to take like a random walk through like the search space and then end up not going anywhere yeah yeah and i i just love that line cuz i can like unfortunately i can definitely think of scenarios where i have done exactly that <laughs> we have But, all done that yeah yeah yes yeah i mean yeah i just want to like highlight that a little bit i just really like that line um i guess the next question would be so in applied ml specifically or you think in ml in general this often like a very limited set of conferences that you want to publish at mm-hmm. so um uh, what and that usually ends up meaning that you'd be working on like multiple projects and you'd submit like you know five ten theme papers to a conference every year mm-hmm. or maybe like a set of three or four conferences every year right um right. how do you maybe manage your time do you want to talk a little bit about how do you manage multiple projects how do you pick projects and So you know these are the ones. This is the set of problems I want to be focusing on for this year, etc. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> good question. So I wish I had like you know uh, like a really nice uh, spreadsheet-driven uh, suggestion for how to ma- manage multiple projects. So it, managing multiple projects is certainly challenging. Um, so personally, I like being very closely acquainted with all the details of a project. and so that um, kind of limits how many projects that i can um, be part of simultaneously or at least you know f- feel like i'm a part of um so my mode of you know working is that you know we have scheduled weekly meetings with uh, all the students working on multiple projects and uh, through the week we constantly keep in touch you know beyond the scheduled meetings we keep in touch via, um, via slack uh, hangouts and uh, now ms teams is one more uh, platform so uh yeah so we, so that you know so the uh, there is some continuity and it's not like we're only meeting during the scheduled uh meeting hours uh so i mean ideally uh at least when i started off uh i really wanted everything to be planned out and uh, finished ahead of time uh but over time i've realized right it it kind of seldom works out that way and uh, things especially with uh, ml being uh, the, the the kind of the pace at which ml is moving and how rapid it is uh, things inevitably turn out to be deadline driven and you know then we'll go into this uh, firefighting mode where you know we're really trying to uh, patch things together and make things work um, and so on uh, so yeah so i think uh, uh, no great answer to how to do this well but i i, I will point uh, people to um uh, articles i have seen that other faculty members have written about you know managing your time well managing multiple projects so one uh, immediate um, article that comes to mind is by devi parik who's at georgia tech so she has these kind of nice blog entries about how to use your calendar very effectively to uh, manage your uh, to do good time management across not only projects but all your various commitments right like reviewing articles teaching um whatever other kind of service related commitments you're making um so doing it you know in a much more organized way i haven't uh, adopted that uh, as yet but is, let me say i aspire to adopting that um but yeah currently but currently it's like you know we uh, the students uh, we all kind of 
um, meet regularly enough that we all feel committed towards working towards uh, our specific projects. And so far, yeah, that has kind of worked out. But um, yeah, I think planning, uh, having some kind of prior planning certainly is a good idea, though I have not really started doing that yet. Um, when regarding kind of selecting problems to uh, focus on, so um, that's the kind of really nice part about being in academia. So you, you have the freedom to choose whatever problems you want to work on. So whatever is of personal interest, you can choose to deep dive into it. Um, and uh, I already mentioned right, some of the topics that I find interesting. So I have different threads which are focusing on each of these topics, like computational models for code switch speech, then accented speech recognition, more broadly, domain adaptation, multimodal learning. Um, and then there are problems that you know, I get interested in because of collaborations with colleagues. So I have collaborations with uh, Professor Ganesh uh, Ramakrishnan in my department, Professor Sunita Saravagi. And so there are some joint problems which get interesting because of these collaborations. And um, also, you know, being more pragmatic about these things. I mean, sometimes uh, you should just dig further into projects where you, know, you see that something is working, right? So if something works, uh, the natural tendency is that you dig further into those problems, into those specific problems. Um, so there are you know, certain problems where you know, we have um, explored uh, in, a little more, in a little more detail because you know, we've seen various uh, small parts which have worked out in those uh, specific uh, problem settings. Um, so yeah, that's more or less how uh, I've selected problems to focus on. Yeah, uh, I guess parts of it are really relatable. I remember talking to Karmana. We usually talk about, you know, uh, 15 days before the deadline, the paper should be ready and should be sent for final review. And like, inevitably, it becomes like 11, 5, 2. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, it's actually harder. Uh, so, you know, right now, I think back to my... Uh, PhD days and my postdoc days and I think my god I had so much time right <laughs> back then why did I and but when you're doing your PhD or postdoc it never feels like that it feels like you have plenty of things to do um, and then so yeah, yeah. Um, hindsight is always 2020 I guess <laughs> yeah yeah uh, and one so to say the question which we ask almost everyone is uh, what would be like one golden tip you would want to give to someone in India starting out in let's say speech research or ML research mm -hmm. uh, what should they take care of one tip for them yeah um, I would say especially if you're an undergraduate uh, student uh, find faculty members at you know IAC, IITs, IIITs who are active researchers who have you know who are actively working on different sub areas and who are offering internships to undergraduate students and apply for those positions because you know that will really give you uh, kind of exposure to research uh, and the um, important problems in the area right, which you can then build on further so i think currently um, there is like there are so many resources uh, on the internet but then it's also overwhelming because there's too many things you don't know how to navigate uh, through this space. So again, going back to the random walk in this large search space. So uh, it always helps to have 
someone mentoring you, right? And so if if it's not if you're not able to find positions with faculty, I think it also um, also seek mentors in um, uh, senior students who are in these universities. Who I've seen like there are these uh, events like meetups. Um, there are uh, these kind of DL meetups. Um, this is just a group of uh, deep learning researchers in India. I think it's called Idli, uh, which is all these are all nice avenues where you can you know you can go and be a participant and uh, hear from you know people in the community what kind of problems they're working on, and then you know pick on um, specific sub areas of interest. And then you know build your fundamentals, like I said earlier, um, further in the sub area of interest. So I think finding a mentor is very useful because I mean, if if nothing else, uh, he or she can offer guidance on you know where to look for interesting problems, what are the good resources to refer to, and so on. Um, and otherwise, you know, the the, gold, the golden tip is all the usual stuff uh, like build your fundamentals, um, work hard. Uh, improve your coding skills, especially if you're interested in speech or any other applied ML field. Right. I guess yeah, I can question. definitely concur to that. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah say, go on. Go on. Go on. Uh, I was saying that a related question I might have mm -hmm. would be when you're looking at students, what is your, like, um, I guess the key signal that you get to say okay no i want to take the student on hmm. because uh, i i mean we've also like we hire a lot of interns we hire a lot of RAs, hmm. and it's it's very hard for us to figure out okay no this person is going to be a productive person he's going to like yeah he or she are going to do something really good or yeah you know this person showing up with like 30 udb projects doesn't you know what they're doing absolutely yeah yeah so these uh yeah these projects like the online projects even um uh, kind of large group projects it's very difficult to figure out you know how active of a contributor was this person uh, to that particular project so it's it's tricky so i have uh, so far i mean because of my um, personal commitments uh, i will i've not been able to offer internships to uh, undergraduate students outside iitb but it's certainly something i want to start doing right so once things uh, stabilize um, i will certainly be doing this in the coming years and uh, I've seen, um, uh, so I, one thing which I've seen some other faculty do, which I, I don't remember who it is, so I can give the appropriate credit, but uh, they actually um, give a small problem to um, the uh, candidates who are interested in joining your group. So it's not like a math problem or something. It's a small, it's an open-ended problem just to see how they think about the uh, specific problem. And then uh, that gives you one more um kind of uh, uh, data point to make your decision right so that'll uh, so se setting and you know what would be good problems maybe you know let's talk in five six years and maybe i'll have more insights then uh, after i've gone through this process but i think some problem which um, allows them to think about some algorithm uh, think uh, see whether they are able to kind of logically think about the various steps involved in the problem, right? Not really solve the problem or even offer any anything close to a solution, but just the way they think about the problem. Um, I think that could be a very useful data point more than anything else in the resume. Um, and of course, I mean, uh, some students who are lucky enough to already have worked 
in some other labs, they can also offer reco letters, right? Like short reco letters from their mentors. And that would, that is very, very useful. So if you actually have some other faculty uh, saying, yes, I mean, this uh, student is capable, then that um, is highly valued. But I'm assuming that is not something which you can easily get. Uh, and so I think this could be a useful way to uh, figure out um, yeah, who are the kind of suitable candidates for your project. Yeah, that's definitely what we have been Great. doing for last two years. So Great. every time we do, we just give out a hiring task, yeah. like a yeah. small problem, and we'll see how people come up with that and then go on to interviews. Yeah, and so maybe I'll turn it around that and is ask you. Mostly it. the best idea. Yeah, yeah, so has, has that and been I, useful? Uh, what has been your experience with that? Uh, yes, that is probably becomes the first set of filtration point for us. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then interview is the final call, but that really right. helps. Uh, and we always ask people that don't only give us the final solution. So we ask them for like a Jupyter notebook and yes. put in things yeah. you did, why you did something. Let the things right. which failed in there be in there. So we can just go right. through like what was your thinking process during the problem. And that really helps right. you narrow down applications. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Um, great to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if nothing yeah. else, and, if and I would also like out... sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go on. No, go on, go on. I was just saying that if nothing else, it filters out the people who can't code. That's true. Yeah. 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 Okay. And uh, I would like to add to the previous question we asked of like the golden tip question. Hmm. The internship part you said, I, I guess I'm like a great example of that. So hmm. I, after my last semester of my undergrad, I went to IIIT Delhi for an internship and hmm. I was not even actively looking for, I got referred from someone and I chose to go there before I start the job. And hmm. that is where the whole let's get into PhD and stuff uh, <laughs> develop. But there you go. Yeah. like being in the system, understanding what is expected from you, finding yeah. professors, being able to work with the professor before you commit to a PhD. Yeah. Journey, that makes yeah. the entire process so much more like smoother and less intimidating, I would say, compared Very to when so. I see yeah. now people who are giving the gate exam, looking at the interviews for the first time. Like it's much right. more intimidating for someone. Like I, I always like to say I went in for an internship and then just like slided into PhD. So <laughs> that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. yeah. That was that's yeah. Cool. That was I would say I was lucky in that part. Yeah. Great. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Karmane, is You're there absolutely anything right. else? Karmane, anything else you want to talk about? Um, I mean, there's a lot of questions I have, but I don't know if we have the time. So I, uh, one thing I wanted to ask you is when you say that you like to be very involved with projects, uh, what mm. level of involvement are you talking about? Is it just like an overview of yeah. you know, what the student is doing? Is it like, no, I'm actually going to look at their code and do a code review? Like, how does it work exactly? Yeah, yeah. So I, um, so ideally, I would even like to be part of coding, right? Uh, but that is too much. I mean, that becomes uh, very difficult really limit how many mm -hmm. projects you can work on. So I do, very, I don't want to say code reviews, very high level code reviews. So I ask students to show me their code. Um, and so I do a pass just to make sure that, you know, it's somewhat modular, it's kind of making sense, but it's very like, I'm not doing a very careful code review. 
so i do um mostly you know students are working in pairs so one student can do the code review for the other student so that's usually how we um try to work around the code review parts uh, but otherwise i meant like uh, even though you know because of my time constraints ideally i would like to be uh, coding i'm not able to but in the least right i i try to get very acquainted with all the kind of experimental details um so it's not just um, i ran this experiment but it's i ran this experiment with this uh, learning rate schedule uh, this was what i saw then you know we then we go through tensorboard plots um so really kind of um, get into the nitty gritty of the whole uh, uh, training regime um and i think uh, this is also more for my learning so that i also uh, get again a better understanding of what works and what doesn't work uh, and this has happened and we have seen that so insights that you know we we derive from uh, project a uh, becomes very useful for project uh, c right i mean just based on uh, it could be completely different problem statements but again here since uh, dl has democratized everything and you can use uh, you know similar models for different applications like insights you have derived here could be very useful and then that saves the student a lot of time right and so Uh, but that i can only do when um, i am very very acquainted with all the details the experimental details so that's what i meant by um, kind of really uh, digging deeper into all the low level details um, but yeah uh, hopefully again i said like when things stabilize one more thing that i would like to do is to do more coding uh, myself um, hopefully yeah that's not a pipe dream and it will be realized <laughs> right Uh, and have you found like tooling that makes this easier? Uh, I mean, I know with the people, the teams that I work with, uh, I've tried very hard to get people to start using like TensorFlow, weights and yeah. biases, stuff like that, to try and make it easier to collate all of this experimental information. Yeah, we actually, Google Sheets no, all the time. Yeah, so we are also so we do Google Sheets. So far, we've not graduated beyond Google Sheets and Google Sheets with you know a lot of like lots of color schemes. I think that's the best we have reached. so you okay. have uh, you know uh, you have a different colors for uh, pending experiments and uh, converged uh, models uh, experiments which are you know in the pipeline uh, various things so that then it becomes very um, maybe you can very quickly identify which are the interesting kind of experiments to focus on but only but this is all within the spreadsheet domain right we've not really graduated do do you either of you use any tools to help um, kind of organize your experiments not me so, so for me it's yeah tensorboard uh, i swear by tensorboard and curves yeah uh, if anybody comes to me with a neural network without like a loss curve i'm like manly dikh rahi <laughs> so but other than that yeah it's mostly sheets Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, mostly Google Sheets and like some to-do list. Like I, I keep a lot of personal to-do list. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. at a team level, it's mostly a Google Doc of yeah. whatever ha- has happened need to do, and like a Google Sheets for like results. Right, right, right. Someone, one of my students had, um, he had created what was it called? Trello, I think. Trello. T R E L L O. We have tried Trello. Yeah, yeah. I tried Trello. Yeah, it just doesn't load. No, it doesn't. And then I just thought, well, I'm if too even old like for this. one person doesn't use it, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. If even like one person doesn't like uses it actively, yeah, it defeats the purpose in my opinion. That's right. And That's it's right. like, 
in like labs which are not really like you know companies where you're forced to do things it yeah. becomes really hard to get people to use same thing or force them to do something so absolutely yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah i think yeah, at the end of the day as long as there's some um, way of organizing your experiments yeah so in our in our lab it's all yeah google yeah. sheet driven Okay, I think that's uh, about it in terms yeah. of your podcast. Um, yeah. Great. Yeah. Thank you, Professor. Sure. It was really nice. Yeah, really yeah. nice chatting with both of you. Yeah, great fun. Thank you for listening to the ML India podcast. Your hosts were Hitkul and Karmanya.